Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 17. I'm going to read briefly from Exodus 17 before we turn over to our sermon passage, which is Hebrews chapter 4. So in a moment, we'll flip over to Hebrews chapter 4, and our sermon will come from verses 1 through 11. But first, we're going to read from Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. If you were following along in the worship guide this week, you found the obvious typo. I had told you to read Exodus 17, 1 through 17. That's obviously impossible. There's only 16 verses in the chapter. I had meant read verses 1 through 7. So Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. You're now the word of the Lord. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also, take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, Because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Amen. Moses finds himself, as he often did, in a sticky situation. He has successfully led the people of God up out of Egypt into the wilderness. But now the Lord has specifically commanded them to go out of the wilderness of sin and camp in Rephidim where there is no water. Don't skip that. God intentionally commanded them to go to where there is no water. Sometimes God's commands don't seem like a thing we want to do, does it? God says, go to Rephidim, where there is no water. And the people say to Moses, what are you doing? Did you bring us to the land of no water in order to kill us with no water? And Moses says, time out, time out. This wasn't my idea. Don't contend with me. You're contending with God. This was his command. They say again, well, he must have brought us up here to kill us because this is the land of no water. And Moses turns to God and says, what do I do? And God says, all right, take the staff that delivered Israel out of Egypt. Take all the elders who bear witness to the work of the Messiah. Go with them, out in front of them, and with all Israel and all the elders watching you, face the rock 
that is between you and Israel. You guys know the story, right? You know how we often tell the story, right? Moses takes his big stick, he clubs the rock, and out comes water. There's one essential detail missing from that telling of the story. Who is on the rock that is struck? It says in Exodus 17, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. The rock that was with them was Christ. It was the presence of God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The rest that they sought in the wilderness, the water that they sought in the desert place, was not in rocks, was not even in hydrogen, two parts, oxygen, one part. It was in Christ and Christ alone. With that in mind, turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to see the Holy Spirit take hold of this principle in Hebrews chapter 4. I'll be reading this morning from verses 1 through 11. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Here again, the word of the Lord. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter, Because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying to David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Amen and amen. Yesterday afternoon... I messaged one of my new RP pastor friends from Scotland, and I said, I'm praying for your sermon preparation and your ministry tomorrow. He reciprocated and said, thank you. I'll be praying for you. Did you make it to the American Synod? I messaged back, no, I recovered from jet lag. He messaged back, laughy emoji, quite right. You see, after a season of exertion, after a season of effort, it is 
quite right that we should rest. It is right, quite right, that we should rest. But, of course, one of you have already snickered because you know where this story is going. Within 24 hours of trying to recover from my jet lag, I received a phone call from the American Synod asking me to serve on a study committee that they were just creating. Apparently, I need rest, but not yet. How often does life feel that way? I need rest, but not yet. I am weary, but I cannot stop. It seems very often that the Christian lives between those two poles. I am worn out, but I cannot stop. I need rest, but I must keep going. And that unresolved tension that we often feel in the faith is explained in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The reality is, is that we are awaiting a rest. There is a rest that remains. We may partake of that eternal rest in small doses here and now. We have both entered into the rest, and yet there is a rest that remains. So the good news for us today is that there is in Jesus Christ a complete rest. You don't have it yet. It's on its way. It is good news for us today who are weary. Rest is coming. It really is. Jesus is coming and with him is his rest. And so the urge this morning, the command this morning, is that we would learn to trust the work of Jesus. We would put our faith in his work and not ours. With this in mind, let's look at the text and notice that the first word is, therefore. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have come short of it. This word, therefore, hinges chapter 3 and chapter 4. In fact, it pulls together the flow of the author's argument. The Holy Spirit has claimed in chapters 1 and 2 that as fantastic as the angels who spoke to our patriarchs in Genesis were, they were eclipsed by Christ. The Holy Spirit has further argued in chapters 3 and 4 that as wonderful as Moses was, he has been superseded by Jesus. And so this therefore is drawing that argument to its application. If Jesus is superior to the angels who spoke to the patriarchs, and if Jesus is superior to the Moses who spoke to Israel in the wilderness, there are two conclusions we can draw. First, a promise remains of entering his rest. God has promised and the promise has not been empty. It has not been canceled. God has promised his people rest and it remains. You know that exhaustion that you feel in your body? You know that exhaustion that you feel in your eyelids? You know that exhaustion that you feel in your heart, in your mind, in the bones of your soul? It won't always be there. The day is coming when you will wake up and there will be no pain and no fatigue ever again. There is a promise of rest 
that remains. There's good news, friends. This is not as good as it gets. As good as it is. As beautiful as this world is, as beautiful as this fellowship is, there's better fellowship coming. As great as this sermon is, there are greater sermons coming. As wonderful as it is to enjoy all the rest that is available to you in this earth. Sleep each night, naps each afternoon, if you have that kind of job. The Lord's Day at the first part of every week to worship and to pray and to fellowship. All that rest is but a sample, is but a first course, promising that there is a fuller, further rest yet to come. It gets better. But then secondly, the Holy Spirit teaches us to conclude that we should fear that some will fall short of it. Notice within the context, this fear is a healthy, holy thing. This is not a selfish anxiety. This is a genuine Christian concern for the souls of others. That point is made in the pronouns. Notice that the Holy Spirit does not say, Now I want each and every one of you to worry about whether or not you're going to make it to the finish line. He says, Let us collectively fear lest any of you should fall short. It is a mutual concern that we show for one another, not so much ourselves. This is not so much a call to anxious concern for our own assurance of salvation. This is a call to be be caring for one another. To think, brother, sister, are you going to make it to the finish line? Now this phrase, have come short of it, is intended to be athletic. The author here, the Holy Spirit, has in mind the idea that if you run 26 miles, you will not complete a marathon. You have to run 26.2. And without the point two, you will come short of that rest. But the phrase in the Greek is actually referring to time, not distance. That if you were to run an endurance race where there were markers and you had to meet that marker at a certain pace, they do this a lot in cycling, you have to bike 100 miles. And if you don't bike the first 20 fast enough, and if you don't bike the next 20 fast enough, and if you don't bike the next 20 fast enough, they'll pull you out of the race. That's more what seems to be the Holy Spirit has in mind. Can we sustain the pace so that the clock doesn't run out, so that the time doesn't elapse? What the Holy Spirit is warning you of is the fact that you must be ready for eternal rest and you have no idea where the finish line is. You don't know if you will be summoned to rest today, tomorrow, next week. You don't know where the finish line is. The finish line is your death and you don't know the day of your death. And so be ready today. The Holy Spirit testifies to us Since Jesus offers a real and eternal rest, lay hold of Christ today. Believe in Jesus 
today, then you won't come short of it. You won't run out of time. Time is running out. Don't waste it. But this command is given to us as a congregation, as a community of fellow believers. So how are we to exercise this mutual care for one another that stirs up an awareness that rest is coming? Well, the Holy Spirit goes on, beginning in verse 2, to give us more practical applications of this. First, notice in verse 2 that the door into eternal rest is faith. The gospel was preached to us as well as to them. That is the good news of eternal rest, the good news of heaven, the good news of the life that is to come was given to them. Israel was there in the wilderness. And Moses said, we're going to Canaan, the land of rest, the land flowing with milk and honey. They had the good news. There's something better than getting out of Egypt. You did get out of Egypt. That's very good. But there's something better coming. They were living in the wilderness. Their sandals did not wear out. Their clothes did not fail. They ate bread from heaven every morning. They ate quail on the breeze each evening. But there was something better coming. There was something better. This good news. Heaven is coming. But they did not mix faith with hearing. This news, this good news that heaven is coming, rest is coming, did not profit them, for it was not mixed with faith. That's what the New King James tells us, right? It was not mixed with faith. It appears there is a recipe by which we must encourage one another. Are you living in the promises of God, hearing them and believing them? The recipe for rest is knowing the promise of God and believing the promise of God. They must be mixed. It is not enough to simply hear the promises of God. You must also believe them. And so we are summoned in this text to be a people who are afraid that there are those in these pews who hear promises and do not believe them. The Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking with the Lord. What if we inverted that statement? John has no greater terror than to hear his people are not walking with the Lord. Is that not also true? Parents, what do you fear? Do you fear children who hear good news, but do not believe it? Brothers and sisters, what do you fear about one another? That they hear good news, but do not believe it. Let us press it deeper into our lives, because in the ESV, the translation is not that they mix faith with the promise, but that they mix themselves with those who believe the promise. And this, too, is a good application for our souls. That if we want one another to be mixing faith with the promises of God, then the best way to do that is to get believers together and to mix our faith with the God's promises together. Do you have a Bible reading partner? Do you have someone who reads the promises of God to you? 
Do you have a prayer partner? Someone who prays the promises of God for you. Do you have family worship? Do you have private worship? Do you have fellowship with the saints in which they hand you the promises of God and in which they pray for you? Believe these promises. Live these promises. Let us mix our faith together. And let us mix our faith with the promises of God. This is step one. That we should be a congregation who enter the rest of God, who give God's rest to one another through a fellowship that applies and prays the promises of God for one another. But then the next step, the Holy Spirit points us to a higher example. Even as wonderful as it is that there was Joshua and Caleb standing in the wilderness telling Israel, no, the promises are yea and amen, let's take the land. We have someone better than Joshua and Caleb. It says in verse 3, we who have believed do enter that rest. That is to say that if you were to mix your faith with this promise of rest today, you would actually come into the possession of that rest today. How cool is that? You get to begin to taste the eternal rest that is coming. He has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. By this, the Holy Spirit seems to mean that when David sings Psalm 95, I swore in my wrath they should not enter my rest, he is reflecting back on the fact that even Joshua did not give them full rest. We'll see this again in verse 8. David is reflecting on the fact that there are two places in the Old Testament where it is said, and the land had rest from war. The first is when Joshua began conquering Canaanites. The second is when David finished conquering the Canaanites. Just as Israel in the wilderness had a rest that remained, the land of Canaan, so too Israel in the land of Canaan had a rest that remained. A rest that was to come under David. Joshua didn't complete the conquest. David came and completed the conquest. In like manner, our friends, we have a rest that is not complete. We live in a world in which Christ is overcoming our enemies. But it's not complete. We're not done yet. We have this day once a week to rest. We have our fellowship on which to rest. We have worship, family, private, and public on which to rest. But none of those are complete. None of those are finished yet. Although the works which undergird that rest, verse 3, were finished from the foundation of the world. Have you ever undertaken a task that you knew was a guaranteed success? Have you ever taken a final exam where you knew that the curve was so steep no one in the room was going to fail? That's what the Holy Spirit is telling us. That the work of Jesus is so secure, so firm and fixed, that anyone who is betting eternity on Him 
is guaranteed to cross the finish line on time. You still have to run the race, but your outcome is guaranteed. I mean, could you, I can't, Patrick's not here, I can't pick on him. Could you imagine starting a marathon with the official timekeeper telling you, this will be your finishing time? One hour, 59 minutes. And you're like, dude, I, I can't run that fast. And he goes, I know. But I know someone else who does run that fast. And I'm giving his time to you. This is what is offered to us in the good news. There is a rest we cannot achieve. There is a rest we cannot accomplish. There is a rest we cannot create or make for ourselves. We must receive it. It is a work that was begun before the foundation of the world. In fact, according to the Holy Spirit, it was a work that was finished before the foundation of the world. The work is sure. We have only to receive it and rest upon it. Do you trust Jesus to get you into heaven? Do you actually rest on his work, that work whose foundation predates the world? Similarly, in verse 4, the Holy Spirit says he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day. Of course, he knows where it is, Genesis chapter 2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Notice then that the work on which our rest depends is the work of God done from the foundation of the world. So too, according to verse 4, the rest into which we enter is God's rest. It's his rest. We join him in resting, even as we join him in working. This is our father's world. He is making of this world what he wishes And he is calling us to rest on his work. He is calling us to enjoy his work. For as I said before, God doesn't get tired. Six days, God says, let there be light, there's light. God says, let there be waters above and waters below. There is sky and there is sea. God says, let there be dry land and vegetation. And there is. God says, let that light be sun, moon, and stars. And there they are. God says, let the sky and the seas be filled with birds and fish. And it is. God says, let there be animals and humans on the dry land among the vegetation. And there they are. And on the seventh day, he rests. Why? Is he out of oxygen? Why? Is his his jaw tired from all that talking? Why does God rest? To enjoy To enjoy the creation. And we are summoned to enter his rest. Come, enjoy the works of God. Come with gratitude, delight in the world that he has made. Come in gratitude and delight in the church he is building. Come delight and rest with God. Your rest depends on the work of God. Your rest is also with God. In fellowship with him. With this in mind, the Holy Spirit returns to his principle. Since therefore, as he said in verse 1, it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter it because of disobedience. 
This disobedience was a failure to believe the promise. A failure to believe that there was a further, fuller rest. And so now, in David, he designates a new day. This is Psalm 95. Today, after a long time, that is the time from Joshua to David, he has said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Just as Moses failed to bring his generation into the land of rest, so Joshua failed to deliver to Israel all rest. Likewise, David rises up in his day and he sings in Psalm 95. Today, enter his rest. Showing that once again, David himself has failed to give to Israel complete rest. Notice at no point has the Holy Spirit established the superiority of Jesus with a New Testament reference. All he's done is turn back to the Old Testament. Moses didn't get him into Canaan. Joshua didn't complete the conquest. David, having completed the conquest in the land of Canaan, nevertheless wrote Psalm 95 saying, there remains a rest. The job's not done. We've not been brought into the full rest. We're still waiting for a new Moses. We're still waiting for a new David. We're still waiting for a new Joshua. And when is it that we should look for him? When is it should we soften our hearts and prepare to believe in him? David, according to Psalm 95, says, today. Now this word could be understood as a command to put your faith in Jesus today. As in Sunday, June the 25th. I don't know what day it is. Sunday, June the 25th. Today. Right now. To be a faithful preacher of this verse, I would actually say to each and every one of you, I beg you, don't go through those doors without faith in Jesus. Today. If you hear his voice, know that there is rest in Jesus and no one else. Receive him and rest on him alone today. Now, as dramatic as that is, and as urgently as I feel that, what is incredibly rich and exciting about it is you guys could actually get the same message tomorrow. Because tomorrow is also called today when it comes. And that is also the meaning of Psalm 95. Today, as long as you have a day, as long as you have today, as long as something is happening in which God is still left you on this earth, you have the opportunity to obtain for yourself heavenly rest. This is an essential point not only for securing heaven, but for living well on planet earth. If we are to understand Hebrews chapter 4 correctly, the thing that you need most in your marriage, in your parenting, in your schooling, in your work, is the realization that none of those things are going to give you rest. None. Jesus alone gives you rest. And when you get up tomorrow and you go to work, you can't remove from your eyes that truth. Let not your heart harden. We are perpetually at risk, beloved. 
of hearing on Sunday morning Jesus' grace, Jesus' love, Jesus' rest, and as soon as we pass out the front door, we go back to a world where we think our value is in our work, where we think our worth is in our relationships, where we think it's about me and what I'm doing, and we forget, no, your work depends on his work. You build on the works which he finished from the foundation of the world. And you rest on the work that he has done for you in Christ Jesus. Your job and your parenting and your schooling are not divorced from the gospel. They are to be done, rooted in the gospel and growing up out of the gospel today, every day. Do not harden your heart. But out of the rest that Christ gives you, work freely, joyfully, gratefully. The Holy Spirit sums it up in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he, that is David, would not have afterwards spoken of another day. If Moses had succeeded, Joshua wouldn't have led the conquest. If Joshua had succeeded, David wouldn't have had to fight Canaanites. And even David himself was the one who penned Psalm 95 saying, there's another day. There's a day yet to come. There's a rest that remains. In none of these Old Testament heroes did we find what we were looking for. An answer to our hard hearts. In none of these Old Testament heroes did we find the grace To carry us through this marathon of misery we call life. No, the only way to get to the finish line, maintaining the tempo that this world demands, is to have Jesus. Now, I love this. Verse 8. The whole point of the passage is Jesus is better than Moses. But he doesn't say Moses, does he? Why does he say Joshua? Why pick on Moses' successor? In fact, why didn't he pick on David? He's the one that wrote Psalm 95 anyway. Why Joshua? Because it's the same name as Jesus. Because it's meant to point us to the figure who is behind all the shadows and types. The light that is on the block of the Old Testament is Christ. It is this Jesus who gives us rest. Moses couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. I can't do it. Your spouse can't do it. Your kids can't do it. Your parents can't do it. There is only one who can give you rest. You must rest on him. You must receive him and rest on him alone. By the way, for for those who aren't catching the like overwhelming Westminster illusion that I'm making, you guys know that phrase, receive and rest upon Christ alone? That's from the shorter catechism. It's the definition of saving faith. What is saving faith? It is receiving and resting upon Christ alone as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. Verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. There is a rest in Jesus that is complete and eternal. It remains for us. We have it in full in him, but we have not experienced it yet. 
For he who has entered his rest has ceased from his works as God did from his. How do you know that the rest that we enjoy in Jesus here on earth isn't the full rest? Well, guess what? Monday morning, it's only 18 hours away. This fantastic Sabbath day, full of grace, full of glory, full of fellowship, full of rest, it's going to end. This wonderful fellowship, you're all going to go home. This great love and grace that we experience, that leads us to the tears of repentance and the refreshness of forgiveness, we run back to the same sins again and again, don't we? And fall prey to the same temptations over and over, don't we? There remains a rest from us. We have not ceased from all our works as God did. There is a rest, a joining of God that is not yet complete. How is this for good news today? Encouragement for our souls. As much as you get to enjoy and glorify God now, the day is coming when you will glorify and enjoy Him yet more fully. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent. Was that unexpected? Let us therefore work hard to rest. To rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Do you trust Jesus to get you through life? Do you trust Jesus to get you through this coming week? Are you diligently helping one another to trust Jesus? By being Bible reading partners, prayer partners, midweek group members, coming to prayer meeting Sabbath evening. If those don't work out for you, make something else up. Be together in the means of grace. Cultivate these spiritual relationships that diligently give rest to one another so that there is no example of disobedience. One who casually sits in the pew and quietly walks out unbelieving. I've marveled many, many times to my family how much Popular music, rock music, country music is preoccupied with romantic love. And I use that somewhat euphemistically, I realize. But it is also interesting to me that most of the romantic poets, the thing that dominates a lot of their poetry is the Sabbath day. One of my favorites is George Herbert, the minister, the preacher who spoke of how we fly to rest, leaping from Sabbath to Sabbath. I love that vision of going through life, advancing from strength to strength, dancing from Sabbath to Sabbath. And yet, I find it more aspirational than actual, more often than not. And here then is our summons. To embrace 
rest as a first order business to acknowledge that we must receive and rest on Christ alone in order to have eternal rest in heaven. Friends, take comfort today. There's a better rest than this coming. But it is in Christ, in Christ alone. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that there is a rest that remains for we are a weary people. We thank you for the rest you do and have given that we are each night refreshed with sleep. We are each week refreshed with this Lord's Day. We are refreshed through the fellowship and friendship of one another. We are refreshed by the beauty of this world and the good things therein. But we also give you thanks, our Father, for that great and eternal rest that each of these are but a shadow of, the rest that remains. And pray that you would enlarge this hope and root it deep in our hearts that we go through many trials and disappointments and yet we'll find on the other side our Jesus. And we ask, Father, that you would unite us to him by faith today, that we would receive him and rest on him alone. For this we pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing now from that psalm, which the Holy Spirit quotes in Hebrews, Psalm 95. We're going to begin with Psalm 95, Selection C, so that we might fulfill the command of Hebrews 4 and encourage one another to not harden our hearts, but to bless one another with a patient spirit to wait for that rest that is coming. Psalm 95C, please stand to sing. thanks with me. Our Father in heaven, we do rejoice before you and bless your name. 
For you are good to us as a loving father to needy children. You have remembered us in all our weakness. You have numbered the hairs of our head. You know the days of our years and that they are but a breath and a sigh. You have pity on us like a father. You heal our diseases. You feed our hunger. You quench our thirst. You, Father, are the one who have provided for us abundantly beyond what we could have asked or imagined. And our Father, we give you thanks that we may give to the needs of one another, that every need in the family of God would be met, and that we might even give beyond that to the needs of this world, that they might see the goodness of our God, that they might taste the goodness of our God. Our Father, we thank you for these great blessings and this good ministry, which we have in Christ Jesus. We give you thanks in his name. Amen.